Hey y'all, my name is Nicholas Sparks and uh, I am the author of the novel that the, the film version, The Notebook, was based on. And, well, let's be upfront. You know, I hope you uh, enjoy the film and I'm glad you're here listening to what I have to say about it. As a novelist, of course, I don't have a lot to do with the making of films. I, I live in New Bern, North Carolina, which is across the country from where most films are made, although this one was actually filmed in Charleston, South Carolina, which is, I guess, about six hours or so from where I live, so we actually did get down to filming. But uh, I remember in speaking with um, some of the people, when one of the first questions they asked me once they knew production was going to be getting underway was whether or not it mattered to me whether they shot it in my hometown in New Bern or whether or not they could move the location to, to Charleston or, or, or Beaufort, South Carolina. And, or a lot of authors, I suppose, get upset about these minor changes. But for me, it really doesn't matter because when you look at a scene like, like this one here, it's, it's just the very opening scene, you see what the South is. And the South is a little bit different in Charleston than it is in New Bern. It's, it's much more marshy and it's, the uh, inlets are, are fed by a lot more salt water, so you have a different animal life. But, but when, you, when you see the color of the sky or the stillness of the water or the, the way the, the, the trees linger and, and capture the light toward the end of the day or the beginning of the day, these are the reasons that, that my wife and I decided to move here and, and it's the reason why we continue to stay. People wonder what it is about the South that, that makes the place so different and I think it goes down to the geography. It is so hot in the summer, it's, you've got this high humidity and the bugs and all of this and people say, oh, I'm out. But it slows down the pace of life because when it's 100 degrees and 95% humidity, you just don't walk fast and you sit on your porch to get in, in the shade and, and you watch the water and, and, and you just feel, I guess, more peaceful about everything and nothing seems to be in a rush anymore and, and so often life seems rushed. And the South, I guess, is, is kind of unique in that regard in that, you know, you, you get down there and if you're visiting, people talk slow, they move slow, they drive slow. And yeah, it's kind of a pain, but it's kind of got its benefits as well. And uh, it's the reason why I live here. This, of course, uh, is the opening scene. We're setting the scene, and, and this is a house like many in the South. You know, they used to build these wonderful mansions on the rivers because the rivers were really the lifeblood of all these small communities. They would do all the shipping and, and the major owners and the people who owned the trades and the businesses, they wanted to have ready access either to the water or so they could see their boats going by. So most of the wonderful homes were built there. I am no one special, just a common man with common thoughts. I've led a common life. There are no now, when you see James Garner here in this opening scene, it was modified from the book. It isn't verbatim, but this is probably the most often quoted lines from the novel of The Notebook. It says, I'm a common man with common thoughts, and I've led a common life. There are no monuments dedicated to me, and my name will soon be forgotten. But I've loved another with all my heart and soul, and this will always be enough. 
When my editors read that quote, they used that to do all of the marketing for the notebook. And when they sent out the notebook, they actually sent it out with tissues to the very first readers and the reviewers who were going to do that. And ironically, when the film started, that was exactly what Mark Johnson wanted to do, was to recapture those elements of the film that were in the book, because he realized the book you know, sold 8 or 10 million copies worldwide that people who love the book will want to see a movie that's very, very similar. He's come to read to you. Read? Mm-hmm. Oh. I don't know. Oh, come on. Now, The Notebook was originally set up as a slight mystery, of course. There's no big crime to solve, but there's a slight mystery. You know, you have a prologue, you have a middle story, and you have the end. And you can't necessarily do that in film, and so you kind of have to move it around. But this is an opening scene, and, and in this opening scene, she calls him Duke. Now, in the book, of course, you understand the reason for this toward the end of the novel. And again, in the film, we'll do that as well. But what you have, you have this person sitting down to read, essentially, a story. And when I originally wrote The Notebook, which, of course, goes to the title, the story was written based on notebook form. Thank you. It was the story of this young couple that met when they were kids, and here we are in this opening scene. You know, you have a young man named Noah and a young man named Finn, and they're living a small-town life right around the, the onset of the Great Depression. Things were a little, little tougher back then, of course. You know, the high unemployment, things like that. But you, you had a way of life that, that still hadn't changed. It was still very family-oriented, still very caste-oriented, especially in the South at that time. And I suppose that was one of the major challenges, both with the novel and the film, was to make sure that the period was accurate. You know, you want to portray a period the way it actually was. And that goes, in a novel, that goes to almost a, an evoking of uh, a feeling of nostalgia. And to do that, when I wrote the novel, I spent a lot of time in the New Bern Library, and I looked at pictures of what New Bern looked like, and I went around and uh, found legends of New Bern and talked to some people who were from New Bern originally and what it was like to grow up in New Bern at this time. Now, when The Notebook first sold to film, it was before the book was published. I had sold the book, uh, I guess, on a Monday, and the film version sold on the following Thursday. The first screenwriter they hired for The Notebook was a gentleman named Jan Sardi, and he wrote the movie Shine, and he came up to New Bern in March of 1996. The book was not published until October of 1996, so back then I was still very excited. You know, everything was all new, and I get to meet this screenwriter who was nominated for an Academy Award. And we went up to New Bern, and then he and I did the same thing that I had done when originally researching uh, the notebook. We went to the library. We looked at pictures. He found out history on the Tryon Palace, which is a monument in New Bern. It was the original colonial governor's mansion. And we, we had a wonderful conversations with people who grew up in New Bern in the 1920s and the 1940s. And whenever you start finding the people who've lived in a town for a long time, you realize how different memories are and how things are not necessarily what you think they would be. For instance, right now, what's really popular in New Bern during the summer is uh, families, they'll go out wakeboarding or, or water skiing. And 
What we found amazing was that even back in the 1940s, they had water skiing, and in the 1930s, they had water skiing. And in fact, in the river where uh, I live, you know, they actually had a water ski jump, and people have been doing that forever. And you know, as you speak to these people and you learn, you learn that people change a lot more slowly than society itself. I mean, kids want the same thing now that they did back then. They want to fall in love. They want to meet someone. They want to, you know, maybe get married or find a wonderful job, whatever their life goals are. But these are the same things that people are doing today. You think you're so smart, don't you? That was a funny no, you idiot. Oh, it's okay. I'll take care of this. I started writing this novel in uh, May of 1994. Actually, I started thinking of writing again in May of 1994. My, my career kind of was on a three-year cycle of writing. I wrote a novel at 19, never published. Wrote a novel at 22, never published. At 25, I co-wrote a book with uh, an Olympian named Billy Mills. It's entitled Joaquini. And that was published, but only because Billy Mills was an Olympian and, and he has his own built-in market. But by 28, again, you follow in that three-year cycle, I felt as if I had to write again, but I wasn't exactly sure what to write about. And, you know, I, at that time I'd had, you know, a couple of failures, one minimal success, and I didn't know if I was able to pull off a story or whether or not I could write a story that anybody would want to read at all. So I told myself, you know, I'm going to give myself three chances to write a good book. And if I don't make it by three, that's okay. You know, I'm not meant to be a writer. I'm just meant to, you know, do something else. I could live with failure. I just didn't want to die thinking I never gave it a shot. So when I was trying to evaluate my, uh, my first story, again, that was in 1994, I guess there was some serendipity involved, a sad sort of serendipity, but... My wife's grandparents had passed away the year previously in 1993, and they had such a magnificent love affair. I'd only met them a few times in my life, but one of the scenes I most remember was back in, I guess, 1989 when I got married. My wife was very close to these two grandparents growing up. They were her only living grandparents, and she didn't, they were on her mother's side, her father's, the grandparents on her father's side had passed away when she was very little. So they were all she knew, and, you know, every weekend, every holiday is spent with these two wonderful people. She would go up there in high school when she got her license. She would drive up there. She took to driving up there on her own, and even when she went off to college a couple of hours away, she would still come back once or twice a month to check in on these grandparents and to see how they're doing, to make sure they have their groceries, just or just to simply visit with them. Come on, one day, what's it going to hurt? So when it came time for us to get married in 1989, of course, we were both very much looking forward to having the grandparents be part of this ceremony. You know, we got them the little corsage and their boutonniere, you know, with everyone else in the bridal party. But the day before the wedding, we got a call from the grandparents telling us that they would not be able to attend the wedding. By the end of the movie, you'll understand why. But essentially, they were in such ill health that even traveling the 30 minutes by car to the wedding w would be too much for them. And, uh, you know, of course, with a wedding, you've got so much going on. You know, we went ahead, we went through the ceremony, and 
I guess it really didn't hit home for my wife until immediately after the ceremony, as we right after we walked down the aisle, because there in the back of the church in the, in the vestibule was a table. It was a little cardboard table that, it, that had been set there. That the florist had actually set the box of flowers that everyone had drawn from to grab their boutonnieres and their corsages. Anyway, this box was sitting on this table. We were back there alone, and in this little box were these two flowers corsage and a boutonniere that had been meant for my wife's grandparents. And I think it really hit home for her that they really hadn't been there to see this, and, and she wanted them there so much. And well, anyway, we went to the reception, and uh, you know, we had the cake, we went off to the hotel, and I remember the next morning, um, we woke up, and my wife, she kind of rolls over, and she looks at me, and she's like, Nick, do you love me? And I said, well, of course I love you. You know, you're peaches and cream. You're my, you're, you're my dream. She's like, okay, then you're going to do something for me. I'm like, yes, ma'am. You know, and basically she had me put on my tuxedo and she put on her wedding dress again and, and grabbed these two flowers and uh, some wedding cake that she'd saved and a videotape of the wedding that my brother-in-law had shot. And we drove up and brought a little wedding to these grandparents. And, of course, they didn't expect us to come. They were so excited, and they, they went off, and he got his coat and, we, and his little sports jacket, you know, and he put it on, and, and we took pictures, had the cake, watched the video, and uh, we ended up spending the rest of the afternoon with them. And in the course of spending the afternoon with them, they told us their story. And their story is pretty much the story that we're seeing on film today. It's the story of these two young people who originally met as kids, and then some things happened. And I would love to tell you what they all are, but you'll see that through the course of the film. Wow. Sounds like the road to success. Mm, you bet. Let's find all these colleges. A lot of what happens in this film happened in real life. Of course, the book was changed to make uh, the story, you know, some things were moved, settings, for instance, and, and the film then modified them further. But the spirit of the story and, and everything that it's based on is actually based on these two wonderful people. As I said, you know, they ended up passing away in 1993, and so in 1994, when I sat down to start writing, I... Uh, decided, uh, well, okay, here's a nice little story. It's kind of a love story, and it's uh, a story that I think I can write. Now, I don't know how many people are going to like it, but we'll, we'll see. This is a story that I think I can attempt. And I sat down and, uh, and wrote the notebook, I guess, over about a, a six-month period. I don't know. It's surprising you. So I finished the book in January of 1995, and, and when I originally finished it, the, the novel was 80,000 words, which is relatively short for a novel. Most novels that you see in the store are about 100,000 words, so 80,000 words was short. But in the end, I went ahead and I, I condensed that novel further, eventually cutting it to the point of 52,000 words, which is extremely short for a novel. And I did that just to make the book flow better. It was a very simple story, and I wanted the reader captivated and their interest held, so I did that for a function of uh, keeping the readers turning the pages. But ironically, a lot of the parts that I cut out dealt with Noah and Allie and their early life, and these are the scenes that we're seeing now in the movie. And, 
you know, back then things, you didn't have the Internet. You didn't have, you know, cell phones. You didn't have so much of the things that, that people take for granted today. And I think that for parts of these reasons, you know, you generally made your own fun. And this is a scene of, of people making their own fun. This is crazy. This is nothing. It doesn't mean anything. But it's funny, you know, when you look back, I suppose, or or at least when I do, if you look back on your childhood, these are the types of things that you remember. You don't necessarily remember these little things that you do. Even recently, I don't remember what I, I, I did on the Internet or this or that. But I remember these conversations and these moments where you really get to know somebody, these moments of serendipity and, and, and specialness. And I think that's really well represented here. The book was essentially two stories, and you might think of them as a two-thirds and a one-third. You, you had two-thirds of uh, the story that takes place in 1945, and you have one-third of the story that takes place in, in 1996. The movie had to do that a little bit differently. Instead of going two-thirds and one-third, they really did one-third, one-third, and one-third. They really wanted to cover the early period first because they wanted to capture the, the, the power and the magnificence of first love. Okay. And I, of course, had no disagreements with that. You know, I, when I work with a studio on a film, I'm open to most ideas because I'm the first to realize that films are very different than books, and they must be by definition because they're very different mediums. You know, people who are seeing scenes like this say, well, none of this happened in the book. But to me, this is okay because it might have happened, I just didn't write about it. The big difference between a book and a film is that a book has to create stories with words and a, and a film has to tell a story in pictures. And in a book, you can do things, for instance, introspection. You know, you can learn a lot about a character in which, in which they literally think to themselves and you learn where they're coming from. In a film, this is really impossible. You have to show moments of introspection. And some things work great in books, for instance, as I said, this introspection. Other things work great on films, things like car chases. But this is a scene, essentially, of, of Noah and Allie and how they first came together. And I was clear in the book, at least toward the beginning of the novel, that you know, this was a love that changed Noah forever. You know, he fell in love with this woman, and it was the most powerful love, even though it was only a summer, and it was, you know, some people say that love can't be real when it's 17, and I fall into the camp and says, oh, yeah, it can. You know, in many ways, you know, those first loves are, are the most powerful because it's your first experience with these feelings. And, you know, I know I was, when I fell in love for the first time at 17, and, you know, I didn't end up marrying this person. Uh, but I don't regret falling in love with her either. I mean, it was it was a wonderful learning experience about myself and people. And I think really that the, the, the film does a wonderful job of, of setting up, you know, kind of how it happens. Southern summers are indifferent to the trials of young love. Armed with warnings and doubts, Noah and Allie gave a remarkably convincing portrayal. So here the scene shifts back. Now, in the novel, I, I did not shift back. I had it set in 1996 at the beginning, and I had two-thirds of this story, and then they went back to the end. 
But that's really a function of, of the structural differences between films and, and novels. You can, again, we, you can do different things in different ways. In a film, it's very important to remind people of what's happening. So ideally, in this film, you know, as they move back and forth, the main reason they would do something like that is to remind the viewer that this is a story that's being told. You know, and there's an old rule in film that you never want to do a voice overlay. But ironically, you know, a voice overlay works very well in this particular film because it is essential to the story. A story is being told. This old, this, this gentleman is telling this woman a story. So when his voice comes in and reminds people, you know, that goes right in with the title and that goes right in with uh, everything, that's, uh, everything that the book is about. The real poems what we call poems, being merely pictures. Now, when you see a scene like this and you see Noah and his father and, and Noah's reading this, uh, this book of poetry, you know, whenever you craft a character and you're trying to, to, to make them original and unique, you know, you, you, you give them quirks or you give them personality traits. And this was just a trait that I chose for Noah for a couple of boring structural writing reasons. But... Uh, you know, I really wanted the book to flow and to be poetic, and I wanted poetry to, to be a major part of the book, at least in the flow of the structure of the sentences. And to do that, I made my character, um, you know, an amateur poet, certainly not a writer, but, but someone who could read it and, and, and enjoy it. Oh, is that right? Now, in the novel, Noah's father was, was the single most important person in his life, you know, in these early years growing up. And I'm very glad that the film stayed true to that. Now, as you go through, I said, you know, there are going to be differences. A lot of them go to the difference between a book and, and a film. But overall, of my novels that have been adapted into film, this really, I think, stays the closest to any of those novels. A couple of years ago, I had a walk to remember made into a film. And you know, that stayed very true to the spirit as well, but there were some very major changes. You know, it was not, the novel was set in 1954, the movie was set currently. There were some other changes um, as well. Message in a Bottle was a much longer book, so it necessitated a lot more cutting and a lot more condensing of characters. Uh, but this really retains the spirit of the novel much more closely than even I anticipated. And part of that reason was because the book took a, a long time to adapt. You know, as I said, I sold this novel in 1995. The first screenwriter came out in 1996, and, and the movie wasn't filmed until late 2003. So there was a seven-year gestation period. The reason for that was because you know, you hire a screenwriter, they, they spend six, seven months working on a draft, but it was a little bit too different than the novel. The very first draft we got, uh, it was by Jan Sardi. I thought it was wonderful, but it was very different than what the novel was. So then there's the, okay, you've got to rewrite it, try and get it closer to the novel, so you take another six to eight months to do that. If it's still not what they're looking for, then they start over again. They went to a new writer who wrote it, uh, wrote a very good script, uh, Jeremy Levin, I believe, and he stayed much more close to the book. I remember the first time I read through the script, I was looking at dialogue and scenes that had literally been pulled from the book. Now say you're a bird, too. If you're a bird, I'm a bird. 
And so that script came in, and that was a very powerful script, and it's one that this is very, very close to. And because of that, you know, you had a lot of interest in Hollywood, different people, different directors, so we would wait for one director, we'd wait for one star, and things would fall through, and then we'd go and we'd hire a director or get a director associated with the product, and he'd make some changes, and then he'd fall through. So you had this long five-year period where stuff was being done but no film was actually being shot and it was very funny i would talk to the producer or the studio and they're wonderful people i've enjoyed working with them but they'd say oh you know filming is imminent you know we're going to film within a few months or we're going to do this you know it got to the point where you know you say well i'll believe it when i see it <laughs> and uh and it sure enough you know eventually it came out they hired a wonderful director nick cassavetes and uh really liked uh, his early movies. John Q. I was very excited uh, having him with the project. Of course, his first response in getting into the project was to say that he wanted to make his changes, do a little bit of script revisions of some sort to fit more in line with what he saw. And I said, oh, here goes another one. But uh, but Nick Cassavetti stuck with it, and uh, everybody was happy with it, and they went ahead and, and, and went to start filming. One of the first things you have to do is, of course, cast the the actors. The, I believe, and I can't be sure about this, but from what I know, that is that Ryan Gosling was the first one cast, and he's young Noah here. But despite their differences, they had one important thing in common. They were crazy about each other. From there, I believe the young female lead was cast, and that was a very tough, tough for people to do, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to do it, certainly. But there was a lot of interest in Hollywood, from what I hear, from various leading ladies, and they were looking for someone who was very, very empathetic, and they wanted someone who was naturally empathetic on camera. They found this young lady, Rachel McAdams. She trained in Toronto. She's a wonderful actress. And they chose her because her face and her she acts with her whole body and everything you see is in character and they said that, that she just was magnificent when when you put the camera on her and so they went with her they cast the next two and this was a young lady that uh, I'd really never heard of and uh, when I went down to filming when they were down in Charleston I had a chance to meet her and she was just a charming young lady just a a delightful spirit. But the reason they really wanted someone so empathetic was because when you're trying to capture the beauty of young love, it has to feel real for young people because young people, believe it or not, whether you want to accept it or not, are largely the drivers in the movie market. They really wanted, uh, they really want to see people their age that are reflecting the way they feel, for instance, if they're in love or if they want to be in love. Mainly Millen and receiving logs and, and so logs. when you look at a simple scene like this if you just look at the way Rachel McAdams looks at Ryan you know or if you or Allie looks at Noah however you want to say it or how she relates to her parents here you know you have to understand that back in the south in the 1930s and 40s the caste system was much much stronger back then you know Catholics couldn't marry Protestants you know uh, there was a lot of racial segregation that we won't get into here but the segregation between the rich and the poor was was just as strong. And that's the way it's always been, you know, when, especially down through the South. You had these these big land-owning families. And, and of course, Allie comes from someone who's, who's a, a very wealthy family. And, you know, what do you do if you fall in love with a boy who's 
who's not within your social class. What do you do then? You know, this is another example of how, how things haven't changed, you know. I mean, although the pressures might be less now in some ways, they're greater in others. And, you know, a film like this, even though it's a period piece, still rings very true for, for the youth of today for, for just these reasons. And Sarah Lawrence is in New York. I didn't know that. So here you have a, a situation where the parents are very gracious and polite, and yet there's an underlying standoffishness, you might say. And this again, you know, this is this is very typical, and this was very typical of the South. Um, you know, again, when you're trying to do a period piece, you know, you, you might see a scene like this. Did, did people take off their shirt or do something like this or swim with, you know, were they allowed to go out together? Well, of course they were, because as you can see, her father is right there chaperoning, and and again, kids were kids. And I, I spoke to many people born a long time ago who said, "Hey, look, this is exactly what we did." This is this is a scene we've all seen them. They're in movies a, a hundred times, but. You know, you look at something like this, and, and again, what you're trying to do is, is to, to, to capture the passion and the love that these two felt about each other for a long, long time, because, of course, that goes through the rest of the story, and it sets it up. Okay. They come to, for instance, a house like this. Um, in the South, believe it or not, there are many houses that look exactly like this house does now. I remember I grew up in California and I moved to North Carolina and I'm driving down the highways and you see these places that look like this. You're like, why hasn't anyone torn them down? What happened to a place like that? It looked like a beautiful farmhouse. But what would happen is uh, in the South, especially back uh, in the early 1900s, was a real boom and bust period. It didn't have the industrialization of the North, so it was largely a commodity-based economy, whether it's timber or cotton or tobacco. And these, whenever you're in a commodity-based economy, you go through booms and busts. It's, it's just the way of the world. You know, if cotton's very expensive, all of a sudden everybody plants cotton, and then the price crashes. And so nobody plants cotton, so the price rises. And that's essentially what happened throughout the South, and it's an example of what would happen to a former owner of a home like this. Where I live in New Bern, North Carolina, we have what's called a historic district, and New Bern is the... Uh, is the oldest, one of the oldest towns in North Carolina. And of course, keep in mind that this movie is actually set in Charleston, and I'm talking about the novel. But you could say the same things about, about Charleston. You know, these homes go through periods where they're wonderfully kept up and then abandoned, and these homes fall into disrepair. And this happened in small towns throughout the South until probably you know, the 1970s in a recent time. And then one by one, these houses get restored. You know, historical societies sprout up. They, they buy these houses for literally pennies on the dollar. They offer to sell it to anybody for pennies on the dollar with the promise that they'll fix it up. And, you know, as I was reading through the New Bern history and, and you find out that this had been happening, boom, bust, boom, bust, houses decay, fix them up, then they decay again, I thought that would be a very interesting element of the story because as you go through and, and you would see a house like this, a magnificent, you know, Georgian, you know, two-story with the beautiful porches. This is what most people think 
you know, of the South and, and what the South is like. And it and it's a lot of people's dreams to live in one of these wonderful homes and the beautiful view and all of these things. And uh, I got that straight from the, uh, the Newburn history. So it became Noah's dream. And I'm just trying to give you a little insight how you come up with a character, where these ideas come from. They really, some of them come from you. Some of them come from the things you read. Some of them come from, from instances in which you... Uh, just want to create a character that you haven't read about before, or somebody who's new and unique in some way, and that hopefully people will remember. Now you have Allie here on the piano. This would be an instance of a scene that was more screen-driven than, than book-driven. Allie, I never mentioned anywhere in the novel that, that she would play the piano, but... It's obvious that she would. That is what young ladies did back in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1940s if they were from wealthy families. This is exactly uh, what they did. Now, the, both the book and the film are set during, as I said, the Depression years. Now, the Depression lasted from 1929 until literally the onset of World War II. Um, it was a very, very tough time, especially uh, in rural areas. You know, you had the big... Dust Bowl explosion where literally all the topsoil in Oklahoma blew away and, and farmers went broke. And this is uh, exactly what happened down here. And times were times were very tough. But as tough as times were, you know, people were, were still people. They still fell in love. They still made it. They still went on. Now, this is a scene, of course, that... Um, you know, we all know what's going to happen up here in this scene. And did I cover something like that in the book? And you're like, uh, yeah, you know, I, I actually, I didn't write the scene, but I, but I said what happened that, you know, these two slept together. You say, oh my goodness. You know, you might have some people say that this didn't happen back then. And, you know, I, I was talking to, uh, a nice gentleman in Newburn about a situation like this, for example, he was very funny. He goes, oh, yeah, that happened all the time. We just didn't talk about it like they talk now. And, and, and you know, you see things like this, or you read these, uh, uh, you read Hemingway, who was writing in 1920s, you know, and writing about the First World War and things like this, and young people. Um, and I'll tell you what, if you read something from the 1920s or the 1940s, or the 1950s or the 1870s, you begin to realize, again, what I said, that, yeah, we don't, we don't like to think this happened because we all want to view the past with a wonderfully nostalgic lens in which everything that might be, let's say, not within your moral parameters never happened. But that doesn't mean it didn't. It, it just means that maybe you've kind of chosen to forget these things. Now, of course, the difference would be that uh, back in the 1930s, for instance, if if a girl got pregnant, she would be taken out of town and she would often go off to live with an aunt, so to speak, and the child would be put up for adoption. Uh, but even then, you know, there were still some doctors who performed uh, the the procedure. I know I said that I wanted you to make love to me, but I think yeah. you're going to have to talk me through this. <sighs> I remember when I first wrote this scene in in, in the novel and... You know, that was uh, uh, questions I got from readers was, oh, you know, could this really have happened? And, well, according to most of the people that I talked to, it did. One of the things that I, I loved about um, this this film, however, was the, the cinematography. And even when you, uh, you know, and how can you be thinking of cinematography at a time like this? It's like, well, I ain't going to talk about what's happening because, look, we all know what's happening. But if you just look at 
the lighting, and you look at how it plays on, especially Rachel McAdams there. I mean, she just looks, she's very lovely. And you can see that they spent a lot of time getting everything just right to make this a, a beautiful movie, not just uh, a filmed movie. And there's a real big difference between a beautiful movie and a filmed movie. And I, I tend to hearken the, the, the beauty of this film to what I tried to do with the writing in the book. You know, again, I tried to make a very poetic writing and, because it was a, a poetic and beautiful story. So they tried to do that through the cinematography. And, you know, the more you get involved in, in uh, film or, or novels, and as I said in the very beginning, I'm very minimally involved. I know enough to, I don't know, make a two-minute conversation, I guess, with someone in the know. But you know when you but I, I have always been fascinated by the cinematography, and in all my films, I, I tend to spend the most time with them just because I love to see the way they light things or why they do it this way. And you know, as you move through a film that's beautifully shot, it's you know, and, and there's been wonderful, you know, the Black Stallion, for instance, the movie just becomes so much more. It becomes so much more beautiful. And, uh, you know, this is a very, very tender story. It's a beautiful story. And I say that, of course, I'm very biased. It was my wife's grandparents. But I think the, the, the most wonderful thing about uh, the, writing the book and hopefully the response from the film will be that, you know, I got so many letters from various people saying, you know, this is the story of my parents or this is the story of my grandparents. And I think that's why the, the book touched a chord. It, it would, spoke about... This, this everlasting love, which, which many people have experienced. We all read about divorce every day, but you know what? There are some couples that just keep on trucking through it all. Yes, it is two in the morning. We send the police. Thank God y'all right. Where you been? Mr. Hamilton, all of this is my fault. Would you give us a moment, please? Yeah, you know, we move up here and, uh, you know, you have seen uh, the parents trying to assert authority. Again, you know, this is just an example of uh, how little has, has changed. I, I wrote about it in the novel. I, I spoke to it with other people, and then, of course, it was filmed here. And one of the things I most appreciate in this film is that um, although her, her parents disapproved of, of Noah, you know, they're not hostile. They're not, they don't lose their anger. They don't get violent. These are parents. These are grown-ups, and, and this is the way... That, that grown-ups tend to deal with things in, in situations like this. You know, I have five children, and, you know, there are friends you like and friends you don't, and, you know, you very seldom get mad. Well, you might get mad, but generally your, your solution is to just lay down the law and, and to tell the truth about how you feel. And it's funny because you get a situation like this, and people tend to be more truthful than they are in most of the rest of their lives. They're willing to say almost anything. Raising a daughter and giving her everything... So she could throw it away on a summer romance. Daddy, These are scenes that really set the base for what this story is all about. You know, you've got this this young couple, and uh, that that went through a lot of uh, situations together. And of course, you, know, you have a scene here. Noah, he knows what's going on. In the book, he knew what was going on, and he. And yet, you know, you just sometimes when when it comes to feelings, you you just can't, um, you just can't help yourself. It's final. No, it's not final. Yes, it is. No, it's not final. You're not going to tell me who I'm going to love. How much do you know when you, when you first begin a novel? 
And that's a question that I frequently get. Generally, what I know is I know, let's say, the beginning of the story, the end of the story, and I know four or five or six or seven major elements within the novel. And this, when I was first writing The Notebook, this was an element that I knew going in. I love him. You are 17 years old. You don't know anything about love. Oh, and you do? You don't look at Daddy the way I look at Noah. You, you know, when I, when I first wrote this, I knew that they were going to have difficulty staying together when they were young. I knew this, and I knew that it was going to be largely parental-driven. I wrote about it in the book, and I just didn't describe it in the way, again, that it's all been described I'm now. I'm so sorry. I don't even know what to say. I'm humiliated. It's all right. No, it's not. Yeah. No. But that was one of those elements that, that's very, very important. Whenever you're trying to craft a, a quality love story, um, and a love story is different than a romance novel, is love stories really have their, their roots in the Greek tragedies. And when you're talking about tragedy in a love story, you're, you're talking about essentially something that, that keeps the characters apart. It doesn't necessarily have to be death. Of course, that's the most obvious way that can keep characters apart. But maybe someone uh, is married to another person. That will keep them apart. Maybe someone lives somewhere else in a different country. That could keep them apart. Maybe there's racial or, or ethnic differences. That could keep couples apart. In this particular story, you know, I chose that, look, she's very wealthy, he's very poor, and her parents, you know, this is important to her parents, but it's not important to her. And yet, because of this, these characters are driven apart. All love stories have these elements which keep the characters from being together, so to speak, and that's what creates such a tragic element. And that's why these novels and films are love stories as opposed to, let's say, romance novels or, or romantic comedies. In a romance novel, you have, the, you might say the characters have issues, but in the end, they, they get together and they can be together. In a love story, you know, you either have a bittersweet ending or a, a tragedy or something that really serves to keep these characters apart despite the fact that they both want to do this. And you see a scene like this, you know, these two, is obvious. She doesn't want this to happen. You know, she wants to be with, with Noah. But what do you do? You're still a young girl. You live with your parents. You know, they pay your bills. They're going to take you away. What do you do? I'm sure you could run away, but how do you live? You know, this is the depression. It's not like he can afford even a house for them, you know, what what do you do? You know, so here he is, he's trying to do the noble thing, and and, and that's very typical of, of, of what, what, what might happen in, in a situation like that. Come on! Do it! Do it! Do it! Do it! Do it! This would be a perfect example, you know, this is something I touched on earlier, but when you look at, at, at Rachel and you just see the way she acts. Do you, you see the empathy, you see the feeling in everything she does, in every expression, in the way, you know, she's acting. You know, you see she's mad, but really what you see is that she's hurting. And uh, this is not easy to do on film. Um, you know, after seeing the film for the very first time, and that was, I guess, a few months ago, uh, yeah, I, I was just amazed with, with the young lady's ability. and. Uh, very much, very impressed, and I think she's going to go far. 
He was only trying to do the right thing. Yeah. But what he really should have done is just told those parents to go to hell, just stick it where the sun don't Of course, we switch back to uh, these two older characters and, and the story that they're telling. And I remember when I was first trying to craft this, this older character, you know, for him, I really drew on, as I said, my wife's grandfather. You know, when I first wrote the book, I, again, I was 28 years old. I was trying to write about an 80-year-old man, and that is very challenging to do, quite frankly. Uh, you know, there are some, some of my novels, when you get into it, some of the characters have been easier to write than others because some have been closer to who I am or... or or at least kind of, or I knew someone like that. Let's say if you're talking about A Walk to Remember, I wrote the story from the perspective of a 17-year-old boy. Now, you know, I'm 38 years old now, but I had been a 17-year-old boy. I know how they think. You know, Garrett Blake was 31 years old around the time that I was 31 years old. So again, I could kind of relate to what Garrett Blake was going through. He'd lost a wife. I had lost my mother and father. So I, I kind of knew what he was like. Other novels of mine, let's say Knights in Rodanthe, you know, that's from the perspective of a 45-year-old woman who's divorced and a mother of three. And you talk about The Wedding, which is actually a follow-up to this novel, uh, The Notebook. That was written from the perspective of a 55-year-old man. Look, I need you to tell Noah something, okay? I need you to tell I changed that up so that the reader never knows what to expect, by the way, so that they can be read all they know going into a novel is that hopefully it's a love story and that they're going to enjoy it, but they, it, the novels never feel the same. So when you try and write an 80-year-old character, it's tough to get in their heads, and, and those were the most heavily edited parts of the novel, and I probably spent months and months and months editing through about 40 pages just trying to get the thoughts just right. And of course, I suppose I could have probably done the book as I did the film, switching back and forth. But, you know, I think that the way the, the, the book rolled out, because it was more of a two-third story and a one-third story, um, that, that the book was what it was supposed to be and probably handled the best way it could. But the film also had to be handled differently so that it could be the same. For instance, in the book, I could tell you how much he loved her, da 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 da. But if you had you written the film or filmed the movie with exactly the same structure as, as the book, it would not have worked because you didn't have that history with with Noah and Allie and what they went through in the beginning and how strongly they really felt about each other. You know, you see here. You know, here she is. Um, you know, this is it. You know, this is, this is your tragic separation. And, and this is really what gives uh, stories like these their heft. If you look at um, love stories in general, and they go all the way back, as I said, to the Greek tragedies like Women of Trachis. Shakespeare wrote them with Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, these are two characters, again, who couldn't be together. You know, this is where all of these, these types of uh, novels and films come from are really from, you know, your Shakespearean roots, your Greek tragic roots, but they all kind of follow the exact same structure. Summer romances end for all kinds of reasons. So we're coming up. You see a home like this. This, again, would be very typical of, of what you see, where I live. And, again, it's very accurately portrayed. The strange thing about the, uh, the film that I found was that they filmed the vast majority of it on a, a military base in which they could change the the homes and uh, modify them basically for a variant express. The government, the government was 
basically raising a big part of the um, military base. And so they filmed on this base, but they could put up different facades in front of the buildings and things like that. I found that very fascinating. And I remember going down there when they, they filmed some of the scenes, you know, for for these, you know, you're, if, if you were behind the camera filming, you would be amazed at what you would be seeing. But uh, I love something like this. Finally, after a year of silence. Now, this scene was originally, of course, filmed in uh, Beaufort, South Carolina. And as I said very early on, you know, they moved the setting from New Bern to Beaufort. Ironically, I uh, sold the notebook when I was living in Greenville, South Carolina. And we knew we didn't want to stay in, in Greenville uh, because we're much more water people than mountain people. By that, I mean my wife and I. We really like the beach. We really like the rivers. So we knew we wanted to go to the low country. And Beaufort was one of the, the choices for us. We didn't know whether to go to Beaufort or to Newburn. In the end, we went to Newburn because we'd lived there before, and we knew some people there, and we figured we could settle back in. Patton's third army of Europe. I remember when I was uh, writing this particular scene, and actually, for those who don't know, I did write a scene very much like this one in the novel. It never made it into the novel. This was uh, when I said that I'd written the novel and it was 80,000 words and I cut it down to 50,000 words. These are the types of scenes that I cut out, ironically, in the book because the book was primarily a love story and uh, I just wanted to focus in on that because it was very simple. I remember I wrote four long, wonderful pages about this glorious battle scene and after reading through it, you know, I said, eh, it's a little long, so I cut it to three pages, read it again, said, eh, it's a little long, cut it to two pages, finally got it down to a page. And, uh, you know, a little while later, I read it again, and I said to myself, you know, that's too long. So I went from four, four paragraphs to three, and then three to two, and I finally got this four-page section condensed down to one small paragraph. So I read that paragraph, and I'm like, you know, that's still too long. So I cut that from four sentences to three, three to two, and two to one. And essentially, the, uh, the entire war history of Noah essentially came down to, you know, he had this book of poetry by Walt Whitman that he'd been reading, and said the book once took a bullet for him. So it was, it was, it is funny, you know, as I, as I watch the film, you know, and you see all of this put back in, and then you can see why they did this. Obviously in the film here, this is where Allie meets Lon, and, uh, you know, of course that plays a, a major role in, in the later reason that Noah and Allie can't be together. They couldn't be together in the beginning because of their parents, and later, of course, they, they can't be together because of Lon. <laughs> In the novel, at least, I remember focusing in on the war because you really had to have a reason uh, why Noah became the person he did after Allie was gone. You know, after she left in the novel, he was gone for 12 years. He works for a scrap metal maker, goes off to fights the war. And when he gets back, you know, he gets a letter from this scrap metal dealer who obviously would have done very well during the war that he had received an inheritance and, and he was able to go back and uh, buy the house. Now, the movie go, goes ahead and portrays that differently, but I think that that's, that that's fine. You know, this would be an example of one of these minor changes that is done really for the context of keeping the film moving as, as good as they can. Um, one of the one of the challenges with Lon and in, in writing about Lon and and this is not something I 
originally realized when I first wrote the novel. In fact, it, it didn't come to me until my, edit, my agent actually said, you know, you're going to have to make some changes with Lon. And she said essentially that Lon has to be a good person. Lon has to be a nice guy, a genuinely nice guy, not fake nice, a genuinely nice guy that people like. Otherwise, it reflects poorly on who Allie is. And when I heard that the first time, it made perfect sense. But of course, you're writing and you want to make it real clear that she should be with this other guy and not this guy. And so you kind of make this guy good and, you know, the other guy bad. Um, she said, no, you know, make them both good because that's who Allie would be. And I think that as as the film moves on, you really see that that in Lon's character, you know, that this is just a good person. And of course, this gets reflected back to who Allie is. Now, in the novel, I didn't cover much of the, the courtship between Allie and, and Lon because in a novel, you can cover that very quickly in a paragraph form and pretty much sum up all that needs to be said. In a film, of course, you have to see that Lon is a good guy. You just can't say that Lon is a good guy. You have to actually see that, he, that he's a good guy, and you have to see how he's a good guy and why he's a good guy and why, in many ways, he might even be a really good choice for Alley. And that, of course, all, all leads up to the, the choice that's going to have to be made in the end. In the years immediately following the war, which is, you know, your 1946 through 1948, um, the country really broke into to two sections. Immediately after war, there was um, a depression in some sectors because obviously you had so many people being laid off. Your steel workers, who they didn't need as many ships anymore. Your rail workers, because they weren't transporting as much iron ore. Your shipbuilders, all of these people immediately get laid off because the war is over. Meanwhile, you have all the people who had been in these industries during the war who had done exceptionally well. Ah! I love you. Allie's father would have been the type of person who would have done that, for instance. You know, if you're in North Carolina, you're very heavy into um, timber and timber and tobacco. And tobacco is, of course, was shipped overseas to every soldier every day. They each got a pack of cigarettes. And timber is, of course, uh, everyone thinks it's just for paper, but actually pine is, is used in the making of turpentine. And turpentine had a major use in, in all of the chemicals that were produced um, during World War II. But this, again, is, is what we're doing is we're just separating this out. And, and you do this in, in, in the novel as well. You separate that these are two very different people. And is that OK or is that not? But couldn't understand why at the very moment she said yes, Noah's face came to her mind. Now we come here to Ryan Gosling, or Noah. Uh, he's on his way home from the war. And again, you see the kindness of uh, his father. <laughs> oh, good to see you. Let me see you. You bleeding anywhere? No. Ryan was very clear on the character he wanted to portray with Noah. You know, I unfortunately never had a chance to meet Ryan because I was only down for filming for a couple of days and he was not filming those couple of days and when they're not filming they're not around generally. So there's an old saying on a movie set by the way I think it's funny and so we'll give it to you guys. They say that uh, the most exciting day of your life is uh, the first day on a movie set. The most boring day of your life is, is day number two. 
and you know, as you as you move through film, you you begin to understand that you know you have to move the cameras, and this takes hours and hours and hours, and you essentially shoot the same film and say the same eight lines. Um, so I don't blame Ryan for not being around when I showed up. But you know, you see him in this film, and uh, you know, Ryan has had a long history in in in, in film. You know, he was in Remember the Titans, and he's done a lot of independent films. He's had a, a couple of big films, and this is really his first uh, leading role. And he's a very strong actor. He knows what he's doing. He's very comfortable in front of the camera. He was very clear, as I said, on on the kind of character that he wanted to portray with Noah. And this was a very complicated role. This was a much harder role for for Ryan than I think for probably anybody in this film. Because when you're talking about what, what Noah goes through, uh, especially from, from this point on in, um, one of the things that, that actors generally look for in a film is is the journey of the character. What does the character learn? What 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 goes through the character's mind? What's driving this character? And essentially with Ryan, what's driving him is he was in love once and he lost it, and he went to war, and now he's back. And what does he do? He wants to fix a house. Okay, that's great. You know, you want to fix a house, but what else? And, you know, this was, this was a role that, that really required a maturity of sorts to portray something as simple as this in an interesting way. Now, of course, when you're working through the film, they're going to try to make it as interesting as possible. You're going to have flashes, for instance, here, where, where Allie appears, and, and you get the fact that, no, he's still not over her. And uh, when he sees her, he loves her. You come to this, and this is not going to be easy on the poor guy. And again, he portrays this well. But as I said, I think Ryan had the hardest role to play in the film because his character's journey was was not as nearly as long as Allie. You look at what Allie has to go through, or or as you move through the film, you look at what James Garner goes through or what Jenna Rollins go through. They all have a real clear beginning of a journey and an end of a journey. All of them, all the way through. Ryan, however, his character as written, and it was as written in the book, it didn't come with a journey. Ryan's not off on a journey here of self-discovery. Ryan wants to fix the house because that's what he wanted to do as a kid. Noah had gone a little mad. And I remember when we were first talking about the film and, and you would talk to Jan Sardi or you would talk to, to Jeremy Levin about the, the writing of Noah and, and, we, and we debated whether or not to give Noah a journey of some sort. Did they ever see each other again? Noah and Allie? In the end, we decided to keep it, or actually the screenwriters, I had nothing to do with it, decided to keep it the same and pretty much put the onus on the actor himself. And I remember when I first read the script, I'm like, oh man, I hope um, <laughs> this is not easy. It looks like an easy role to play, but it's, it, as I said, in my opinion at least, it is far and away the toughest role to play. You know, how do you play someone who's, you know, uh, sad about losing somebody without going overboard? This is very tough. In time, Noah finished the house. But you look at something like this, this is your typical, this is your typical Georgia. Now, I do not live in a house like this, you know. The house I live in is, I don't know, 25 years old and kind of modern looking. But, you know, part of me, I think, has always um, wanted to, to live in a house like this. It's funny, we have friends who own houses like that and, and they can't, <laughs> the maintenance is just 
terrible and you know when they remodel them they've it's all got to be toward the historical accuracy and and i'm sure it's very much the same in um in in south carolina as is as it is in north carolina literally if you're going to remodel a home such as that you might have to go so far as getting blown glass for the windows and uh you know, when you got five little kids running around, I think they'd cause way too much damage for us to, to be able to ever do something like that. You know, in an earlier scene, just a moment ago, you see Ryan, he, he, he's going on the river um, at dawn and, and rowing, and there's nothing quite like that. When I was writing the notebook, I lived on a place called Bryce's Creek, and it's just this magnificent, twisting, winding creek, and the water is still as glass, and, and the mist often rises from the, from the water on those hot summer mornings. And, you know, I'd take uh, my kayak out, and I would head up that river, and it's almost like going back in time and so that particular aspect of uh, of Noah's character really came from those things that that I like to do what do you want Noah now you have here this is a this is a scene with uh, I believe her name is Martha and uh, this is something that was not in the book at all it was added, of course. Uh, it goes back to that, that, that earlier reason that I had about Noah and how Ryan Goslin really has the most challenging role here. As I said, Noah has to be doing something. You just can't have him pounding and building a house and saying no to salesmen. You've got to build in a storyline. So this is an aspect of the storyline that appeared nowhere in the book. And it's funny, you know, I often get letters from people, or I, I did after Message in a Bottle or after a Walk from Embers, why did you do this? Why would you add something like this? Or why was something added like this in the film? It wasn't in the book. And part of what makes a great film is to put the characters in situations that, that holds the viewer's interest and to move the story forward. And no one needed something. It could have been anything. This is something that they thought would benefit the film overall without sacrificing the original spirit or intent of the party. Now, when I wrote the book, as I said, most of the, the childhood love was covered in a short period of time, literally two to three pages. And the vast majority of the book, the full two-thirds, really begins to pick up from this point on. Of the season, this is going to be a celebration like which this town's never seen. <laughs> she doesn't Yeah, this was a scene that I wrote about in the book where she sees this house that, that Noah has restored. This had been his dream. He said he was going to do it. And she saw this, and she was just didn't know what to do. It brought back a flood of feelings that she didn't quite know what to do with. It's one of those moments in her life where 
uh, kind of like I was when I first decided I wanted to write again. It's okay to fail if you gave it your best shot, but you don't want to die without ever trying. And that's exactly what she went through in that moment. It's okay to go see Noah and know that it didn't work out, but I don't want to live my life knowing that I might be making a mistake. I don't want to do that. And so this is something that, uh, uh, of course, sets in motion the next part of the story. It set in motion everything that happened in the novel. Guys, could you give us a minute? Yes, sir. Miss Alec? And again, we come up on a scene with, with Allie and Lon in that you learn that he's a nice guy. And that's, you know, that's such a corny thing to say these days, and I fully understand that. And I, I tell you, most movies you see, he, characters have deep flaws, and, you know, frankly, they all feel cliched to me. You very seldom just see a plain old nice, kind person anymore in a movie that plays a major role. And... You know, people say, mine is cliched. I'm like, well, everybody else is doing that. How can this one? It's, okay. This goes back to something I never understand, but it's okay. And it's, uh, it's something, as I said, that uh, both my agent and my editor agreed with. And it's obviously something that the screenwriter and the director and the studio all agreed with, that uh, Allie's choice reflects on, on who she is. Listen, are you all right? Yeah. Okay, then go. One of the great things I loved about the film when I first saw it, you can really see again here, you know, we, we spoke about cinematography earlier, but when you look at the, the costumes they're wearing, okay, granted these are accurate for the time period, but what, what grabs you really is the color and the vividness of it. I mean, they could have put her in any color hat. They chose red with red earrings, and, and you look at the lipstick. This, to me, just makes it a, a wonderfully satisfying experience to watch. It's like watching one pretty picture after the next. And, oh, by the way, in addition, here's a wonderful story to go along with it. When I uh, first wrote the book, uh, I guess it was probably page 25 out of 150 that uh, Alice steps out of the car. I think that... As I said earlier, the movie did it right by doing it this way. But I sometimes wonder what would have happened had they done it a little bit differently, maybe perhaps not devoting as much to, to the youth and going more into this period. At least that's what I first thought when I read the screenplay. Then when I saw the film, Hello. it all became much more clear. And it's, that's most vivid in this scene. I this scene would mean absolutely nothing unless you knew what they'd gone through. And you had to have enough of what they went through I mean, I to feel it. And to arise feeling takes time. You can't do that in nothing. For instance, you can't kill someone at the beginning of a movie and care because you, you don't know the person. So, you know, this was a very powerful scene in the book when I wrote it. It was, uh, again, it set in motion everything, but it would have meant nothing had you not uh, done what the screenwriter and the studio decided to do here. This again, see, you know, she was sitting in the tub just a few scenes ago, and uh, she, she was, okay, it's okay, I just have to know. And so here she is. And, uh, you know, this, the, the scenes in the novel were very similar to this. There was something almost unbelievable about seeing him again after so long 
simply because holy mackerel, they'd gone through so much when they were young. Yes. Perhaps more than once. Doctor needs to see you. Me? Now? No, him. But he has. Now everybody knows that, uh, you know, James Garner and Jenna Rollins, these are really icons. I haven't spoken much um, upon them. I don't know that there's really anything that I can say. What can I say? Can, do I have to really convince you that, uh, that these two people know how to act? I, you know, I mean, these two people have been doing this longer than I've been alive, and they've been successful at it since the very beginning. We're talking Academy Awards, Emmys, the whole ball of wax. But, you know, I think if you, if you look at Noah and Allie in this period, the book kind of, it's exactly the opposite of what I said about Allie and Noah in the younger years, where, where Ryan Goslin really had the tougher role to play in their youth. Jenna Rollins has the much, much more challenging role to play in this part of the film. And deep breath. And one more. This is Noah's story, you know, this is the story that he's telling, so this is his journey. He's telling the story for a reason. He's moving it towards something, and Allie's going along for the ride. In the beginning of the movie, it was very much different. So that was one of the reasons why the film took so long to actually be made into the, the film. I mean, how do you get this balance right? What kind of actors do you play? How much do we add to give them stories? And so they'd veer one way and try it, then they'd go back to this. And in the end, they, uh, they went back to the, the novel and said, you know, you, we're going to try and do it this way, and we're going to do it this way because this is the way that works best. In the writing, you know, I, de- I didn't have to deal with these particular issues because you can do things in writing that you can't do in film, but uh, I remember even when they first bought it being uh, curious as to how they were going to handle it. It's funny, you know, I mentioned that uh, the book was sold on a Monday, and then the film was sold on a Thursday. A lot of people probably wonder what that was like. It's a very odd experience, to tell you the truth, because I sold the book, and it was a sizable amount of money, and, yeah, I was still dizzy from that. You know, we closed the deal on uh, Monday evening. You know, I spend Monday evening talking to friends and family, you know, being very excited. Tuesday, you wake up, you still can't believe it. But the funny thing was on... uh, Thursday and Friday of that week, you know, I was selling pharmaceuticals in that time, and I had to drive down to Hilton Head, South Carolina, which ironically is near the area where this film would eventually be shot. But I'm driving down to uh, Hilton Head for a little conference. I'm allowed to bring my wife. At that time, I had two kids. So we're driving down the highway. You know, it's a four or five hour drive from Greenville, South Carolina. And I remember we pull over into this McDonald's out in the middle of nowhere. So I go over to the payphone while the kids go in to get cheeseburgers or whatever. And, um, you know, I check my voicemail. There's a message from my agent. You know, we're, we start talking about the book. We're still so excited about this deal. And she's like, oh, 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 by the way, she said, um, the studio, New Line Cinema, they read your book. They love it. And they want to make a movie about it. You know, what do you think? And I didn't even know that my book had made it out to Hollywood at that time. I'm standing there in this, you know, 
asphalt parking lot on a payphone. I'm watching my kids jump through jumpy balls, and my wife's trying to hold all the cups and everything together. I'm wearing flip-flops and shorts. And I'm just standing there thinking, you know, this is a pretty strange life I'm leading this day. I mean, it was very exciting, you know, to think that you were, uh, you know, that, that, that you'd sell the film. And, you know, I said yes, and, and, and we've moved from there. This, this way. Now, when I first wrote the book, this scene was um, probably, if you take all of the scenes in the novel, this is the longest uh, scene per page. And this is a scene that really sets the stage. You know, I found that uh, whenever you're trying to do a, a scene in which, you know, the characters begin to fall in love, you want to write a scene that's very romantic, obviously. The problem is... And it is a problem, is that you want to also do it originally. And originality is very hard when you have just so many books and so many films that, you know, you, you've seen scenes in bars where they fall in love or they fall in love on the dance floor, they fall in love, you know, while they're driving in a car, all of these things. So you want to do something that nobody's done before but kind of everybody can relate to. And so this is a very simple thing. You know, they, they have drinks. Um, they have crab, you know, that he catches off his dock, and they sit on the porch and they talk. You know, I think if you, now that you understand what these people went through because of the early part of the film, again, something like this has much deeper meaning than had they gone out somewhere and done something exciting. All of that would have been a distraction. In the book, I didn't want something else to be a distraction either. You almost want it one-on-one, -on -one where you see that there's still something there, but neither one is sure what it is, that neither one is sure where they're going to go from here, only that it's uh, good to see each other again. ...like a sudden flame, blazing and streaming into his heart. Noah stayed up all night contemplating the certain agony. It was a, it was a tough scene to write in the novel, and it was uh, portrayed much more shortly in the film. As I said, if you take that one scene in the novel, that is probably 20% of the entire book. In the film, it's uh, two minutes out of uh, 120. And yet it still was powerful in this exact same way because of the early period. I mean, you know, it's funny. The more you change things sometimes, the more it stays the same. That's a cliche, but it's, a, it's an example of exactly what happens uh, when, you, when you move from book to film. Hello there, honey. Hi, Davini. What a pretty name. Thank you. Oh, my God. Thank you. It's a, it's a very sad scene once you, once you realize what's happening and uh, you realize she doesn't know any of these people and, and, you, and you understand that uh, these people are her children. You know, I think I'll run on up and take my afternoon nap. Right? This is a heartbreaking scene and in, in the novel I avoided... The, the topic of the children, other than to say that they had them and that they're close to them and that they love them and their kids are doing okay and they come to visit. But it wasn't something I added into the book uh, because this, again, was, was Noah's story. And you could describe the 
ache that Noah felt very effectively on the page because I was allowed to use introspection. But by this point, you, you've got to be feeling the ache. And uh, this is the way they decided to do it visually. They decided to show the hurt with the children and, and you know, move the story forward. But this, of course, is the whole central idea behind the novel. It was the central idea behind the story of my wife's grandparents. Uh, this everlasting love that, uh, that lasts Your mother, that's my no matter what happens. And I think that's why, toward the end, my novel had such an impact on so many people, because um, I think it's everyone's fantasy to be loved forever, no matter what. I just, I'm just surprised. How, how did you find me? Well, there's only one hotel in Seabrook, and when you didn't call, I got worried. Where have you been? You all right? You know, I feel like an idiot because I called your hotel about a hundred times. <laughs> when you decide to write a story about uh, everlasting love, and that certainly isn't the only theme in love stories. You know, I've written about love after loss. I've written about first love or love and sacrifice. You know, a lot of people wondered why I, I chose that theme of, of everlasting love. And, you know, it, it was partially, of course, it was the story of, of my wife's grandparents. You know, I remember, you know, if you go back to that, that first meeting we had after the wedding and, you know, my wife and I were, were married and we were over there visiting with them. And you just see the way he held her hand or, or looked at her, the way he got her tea. You know, he just stared at her and he had this sparkle in his eye and it was, it, it was amazing. And that's really what I wanted to capture here because, you know, love is, goes through so many different phases. You know, you have this passionate intensity, you have, you know, this comfort level. You, then you hopefully move to this deep love that is strong in the face of all adversity. And it, and it helps you make it through, it helps you make, become a better person, or it helps, I guess, you stay strong. Your love not only helps the person that you're loving, but it helps you stay strong. But the simple fact is, this isn't easy to do. And, you know, I, w I remember when I'd write those scenes, I would um, close my eyes and, and remember my wife's grandfather and, and just the way he was. And when I opened them again to begin to write the story, I'd say, okay, if that's the way I was looking at her, this is the way I must have been feeling. And, you know, I'd never really addressed how I wrote from an 80-year-old perspective. That was exactly how. And, you know, I chose to wait a little bit to tell you how I did that, but, you know, what you do is you picture who it was, and then you say, how do you feel? And I always tend to operate with the fact that uh, a feeling of love is the same at 19 as it is at 80, if, if it's real love. If it's lust, it might be something else, but if it's real love, it's love. What are they all doing here? I don't know. Now this scene is uh, modeled after something I'd, I'd read about in, uh, in, in, in North Carolina history. There's a lake called Lake Manamesquite. It's in the northeastern part of the state. And it's where all the swans and the geese migrate. And literally, the water 
becomes a blanket of white. So I had this, uh, I, I was living on Bryce's Creek, and maybe 100 yards up from where I lived, there was this small inlet where, where a tree kind of blocked the way. And if you go beyond this toppled-over tree, you kind of duck your head as you ride in the boat. You come up on this little lake-type setting. And I remember going in there once, and it wasn't certainly Lake Manna Mesquite, but there were probably a, a thousand swans in there. And I, when I was writing this scene, I said, you know, what if I filled that pond with swans? What would that be like? Uh, to me, it was a very vivid image in the novel. And as you see here, it's a very vivid image on film. And hopefully it's, it's something the way that you pictured it when you read it. The swans actually were a very small part of that novel. But they again, they begin to set in motion all that comes next because when you see a magnificent sight, you know, if you see the Grand Canyon or you see a child being born, you tend to be struck with awe and it arouses these deep feelings. And that was the purpose of, of this scene. Ironically, you know, I, I was thinking about this particular scene here when I then wrote the follow-up to The Notebook, which was called The Wedding. And, you know, The Wedding is really the story of Noah and Allie's children. But I had to have a, a good story with Noah, and I said, well, what can I draw from the notebook uh, that, that people will really, really remember? And it was that particular scene. So if you ever pick up the wedding and you read the wedding, you know, you'll see, you'll see the swans. And again, the, uh, the, the swans will play a central role in the story because I've written nine novels, and, and that was probably the, the single most vivid scene that I've, I've ever written. Now this is a scene um, that, of course, happened in the in the novel as well. You know, they're coming back. You know, you, I say they're racing the wind, and, and then the storm comes, and and what do you do? You know, this is very typical in in the South. You know, everything's great, and then it pours rain. <laughs> yeah, I, I still I still have a hard time understanding it. Basically, the humidity rises. Uh, you know, and the cloud bursts. But what I don't understand always is how it always seems to happen just when you don't want it to happen <laughs> you know if you're out okay kids you finally get everybody out let's go play game here comes the rain and of course uh that is what is or is portrayed here i wrote you 365 letters of course in 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 the novel and the film you know even even this scene then leads to uh to to what else happens it wasn't over it still isn't over A lot of people often wonder, you know, especially the way I've been, just been talking, do I think about movies when I'm writing a book? Do I see the actors? Do I picture it out? The answer to that is, is yes and no. The main criteria I have, of course, is writing the best novel that I can. But what goes into making a novel very good is originality. And so if I'm trying to write a, a novel, I, I think about movies so that I don't do things that have been done in the movies. Because the simple fact is more people see movies than read books. I'm fully aware of this, and that's, this is the way things are. So if I'm going to write a scene, I don't want it to have been a scene that's been in a movie. I'll get the most, it's, it's very clear. For instance, I want to write an original book, let's say. I would never write a love story set on the Titanic. Well, it was never a book, but you see, it was a film. And, you know, and so 
When I think of movies, I try to I use them almost as a process of elimination. Oh, this was done in that movie, so I won't do this. Oh, that was done in in another movie, uh, so I won't do that. But do I sit there and actually think, okay, I want this movie to sell to Hollywood. Do I want to do this? No, actually, I don't. I, I really look at movies as a, as a nice little byproduct, and, you know, um, it's great. I've, uh, people ask me in my talks, you know, when I give a f- talks or at, at, at book events, you know, they always ask about the movies. And I have a very simple motto, and it goes like this, and I, and I stand by that today. It goes like this. It says, uh, anytime somebody wants to make an $80 million commercial about my career, I'm all for it. And that's essentially how I, I, I see films, because if you if you count on a film being made from your novel, it probably won't happen. You know, you, you see something like this, I've had some luck, I've had three now and more on the way, you think, oh, it must be easy. But the simple fact is, you know, there's 5,000 novels published annually. Of those, Hollywood will buy 50. Hollywood will make 120 movies in a year. And you say, oh, well, 50 are made from novels. No, that's not true. Still, the vast majority are from original screenplays or, or sequels of original screenplays or are based on uh, comic books or general action adventure plots. In the end, you know, maybe 10 to 15 novels are actually adapted into film every year and maybe five or six become successful in the long run. So if you really get caught up in this and this becomes the most important thing and you really try and write it with movies in mind, you know, the numbers alone say that you're probably going to be bound to be disappointed. So it's much better just to concentrate on the novel and to, to write the best story that you can. And if you do, you know, you have a shot at uh, maybe uh, maybe having a film made. Mm. Wake up. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. I had the... Uh, obligatory roaring fire scene in in my novel and I'm uh, glad to see that uh, they put that in the uh, the film as well and you know it was funny I I spoke a little bit ago about originality and how you know I try to be original and this to you may not you know we've all seen the roaring fire but uh, you know that was still to this day the only time I've ever put it into one of my novels. So for me, I only wrote it once, so I'll go ahead and claim that it was uh, original. You know, when you look at these two, I think that um, Ryan and, and Rachel had wonderful chemistry. You know, I think that when she looks at him, she's Allie looking at Noah, and that when he looks at her, it's Noah looking at Allie, and. It was really nice to see the interaction between these two on the film because, you know, you never know how people are going to interact and and whether or not they they mix together and form more than their whole or less. And I think, you know, at least in my opinion, that these two became more than almost each of them individually. I thought they were great together as a team and uh, almost a synergistic effect, you might say course this scene here you know where Martha shows up this is not a scene that had anything to do with uh, with the novel at all but again it was important because without Martha's influence throughout these things Ryan Gosling would have had an, a nearly impossible role to play and uh, I don't know whether he insisted on it or the screenwriter or the director I believe some elements of it were actually even in the very original screenplay um, and then it was kind of modified and, and added in by, by Jeremy Levin.
I'm Allie. I've heard a lot about you. I've heard a lot about you, too. You want to come in? When you look, I've said, you know, this scene's in and this scene's yeah, not in, yeah. you know, or there, there, there are certainly number of things that are the same and a number of things that are different. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, that doesn't bother me. In the end, I will say that uh, I, I judge The Notebook on, on how much I like the film, just as I judge Message on how much I like that film and I walk to remember on how much I like that film. As an author, I did not sit in the audience and say, that's different than my book, and why did they do that? I said, is this a good film, or am I enjoying myself? To me, you know, it, it's unfair to compare books to movies, and you just want the movie to hold up well against other movies. And I was pleased by the fact that The Notebook was was a wonderful movie, first and foremost. Um, of the three movies, I'd mentioned earlier that this is the most closest adaptation. As I said, much of the dialogue was was pulled directly. But when I say that, you know, don't think for an instance that we're talking 80% or 70% by by that I mean, you know, 5 to 10%. When you look at something like a message in a bottle or a walk to remember, they had probably less than 1% of the of the lines were actually drawn from the book. So 5 to 10% is quite a bit. And I remember the first time I see that, I'm like, hey, I know that line. I wrote that line. And that was, that I think is the most fun part of, of being an author watching their film on screen. You know, I see a scene like this and, and, and you hear her say, hey, Noah. And I sit back and say, hey, I thought of the name Noah, you know, and I picked that. And, and, you, and you say, hey, you know, that whole house thing, that was all my idea. You know, that was that's the most fun part. So when I'm sitting back, I tend to get excited about the parts that are the same and, and the parts that are different. I say to myself, well, they did it to make the movie better, and so I want a good movie. They want a good movie. Why complain about it? Whenever you're doing a film, it's always the, the subtle moments that, that tend to have the most impact. Um, and this is a scene like that. And it's a subtle reflection on the type of relationship that Noah and Allie have. It's fun, it's playful, it's sweet. And it's something that, you know, I think a lot of women dream about. Uh, hopefully a few get them. It all goes into the, the whole theme of the story of this everlasting love and how you show it and how you act toward each other with this. You know, it's one thing for Noah to, to pine for Allie. It's another thing for Noah to help Allie paint again. And that in the novel was a big deal. and. In the film, it's a big deal because she gave up painting and she felt like she was missing something and she gave it up around the time that uh, she left Noah, both in the book and in the film. And that's, of course, very symbolic of, of loss. She gave up a lot. She got a lot and she, she had reached that point in life where she wasn't sure whether the trades had been fair. Now, this scene, of course, is great. This was one of the great scenes in the book. You know, when you're writing a novel, you got to surprise the reader. You have to add conflict. You have to add uh, dramatic intensity. 
And what better way than to reintroduce the mother? You know, you look at Joan Allen here. She had a tough... Uh, we, we talked about the role the, the parents played earlier. It was a tough role, but I think she did a great job. And I think she, she, she played such an important role in this film, um, even more, more important in the film than in the book, in a way. And, of course, that sorry, comes out in the next few minutes. Okay, yes, I stole your letters. It was wrong. But stop being dramatic and at least take some of the responsibility. But you talk about these letters that she's hidden and you say, what mother would do that or would I do that as a mother? Or I, of course I would do that as a mother. These are tough calls. You know, parenting is never easy. There's no handbook out there that says, you know, you do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, parents fly by the seat of their pants half the time. I remember I grew up, I thought my parents knew everything. Now that I'm a parent, oh my goodness, <laughs> like if my kids only knew how little I know, they would, they would lose all respect for me. You know, I'm just doing the best I can. And this is a, a woman that didn't set out to hurt her daughter. She honestly thought in her heart she was doing the right thing. And I think that's another, you know, that's something that I try to incorporate into most of my books. And I think it goes to my worldview, this belief that deep on the inside, most people are good. And most people want what's best for their kids. And most people want to do right by their jobs or their husband. Now, people are flawed. Nobody's perfect. But I think that when people think of themselves, they think of themselves as good. And for the most part, they act that way. So you see this decision that she made to hide the letters. And then you come back. Well, she has a reason for this. You decided to run away. We didn't even make the next town before the police picked us up. And her reason was that she was in love. I did not cover her reason in the book. Uh, this could have been the reason, to be honest, in the book. I never gave it a thought other than she thought it was the right thing to do. And sometimes that's enough for parents when they make a decision. In the film, though, you've got to have a reason because you don't want the viewer to hate the mother. And... You know, in the film, they added this situation in which the mother had been through what Allie had been through before. She knew, and she'd made her choices. And yeah, even now, 30 years later, she questions it. I do. He is a wonderful man. He is good to me, and I don't deserve it. I love him, Allie. I do. I love him. And that's the way so many things come in life. For instance, I had this period in my life where uh, I wanted to be a runner more than anything in the world, uh, an Olympic athlete runner. And I was, I was good back in my younger days, many, many moons ago. You know, I had a full scholarship to the University of Notre Dame, and as of my speaking now, I still actually hold the record at the University of Notre Dame. And my dream was to go to the Olympics, and this was far and away the most important thing that ever in my life at that point in time. Eventually, injuries forced me to quit, and, you know, six years later, I'm writing novels. You know, people come to me, you know, you might say, oh, I'd much rather be a writer. But when I lay on my bed at night, I say, if I could trade, if I could be an Olympic gold medalist or a writer, which one would I be? And even now, it's a tough, it's a tough decision because, of course, that would have opened up different avenues in my life, and I don't know what I'd be doing. But... You know, life is about making the best choices that you can when, when those choices 
confront you and often you you go with what's best and you draw these on your learning experiences I guess you'd say in the novel this is uh, moving toward the climactic scene of the first two-thirds of the story. As I said, the novel is two-thirds and a third. This is moving back to the climactic scene, you know, and Allie, she has a choice to make. Now, had the director gone off in a different path than the book, or had I the book been in its original draft, there would have been no choice here. But you can see how having a choice here really adds to the overall dramatic impact of the story. And of course, so does this moment. I hope you make the right choice. Now this moment was in the book. Yeah, mom hid the letters, but mom kept the letters too. And that goes something to her character. And in my stories, I have this worldview, as I said, that I think most people are good, which is why in my novels, most people are good. They're flawed. But they're not flawed in the bad ways. You know, I have no interest in writing about criminals or drug abusers or alcoholics or, or people who, you know, just serial killers. I have no interest in writing about people like this. For one thing, a lot of people write about them. And number two, I find them boring. I mean, how easy is it to, to act on your base instincts? On the contrary, I find it much more interesting not only to write about good people, but more importantly, I find it much more challenging to create a good person like, you know, Allie's mother in that scene. It's hard. You know, I try and write stories that, that could literally be about the boy or girl next door or about your neighbor down the street or about your family member. And earlier I'd spoken of the fact that the notebook was so meaningful because so many people saw their own lives in this story in some way. They knew someone somehow. But when you're writing about good people or, let's say, someone who could be your neighbor, it's really hard to make them so interesting to hold through an entire novel. What about the past couple of days? They happen, you know? I know that they happen, and they were wonderful, but they were also very irresponsible. There's a lot of challenge that I do it, and, and of course, many other authors do it. But it's far more easy to make someone like Hannibal Lecter interesting. You just have him eat another eyeball or something or cut up somebody's liver. You know, that almost holds your attention on a page and on film like a car accident. It's very easy to make someone like that interesting. But what about someone like your neighbor, you know, or your, or your grandmother? How do you make your grandmother so interesting that people want to see them on film? It's tough. There's an art to it. And I think this art also went through to uh, the film with, with Nick Cassavetes. I think he did a wonderful job in making relatively normal, ordinary people, people that it seems like you can know, and making the daily tribulations and choices in their life uh, interesting. Would you just stay with me? Stay with you? What for? Look at us. We're already fighting. Well, that's what we do. We fight. Now, this is, you know, you know, I, I just laugh there because I, I think it's, 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 it's funny. This would be an example of one of the differences in, in the film from the book. You know, Allie and Noah in the book, they didn't argue. They kind of got along, you know. Um, 
it was it was much more of a of a comfortable soulmate type relationship as opposed to a fire and ice soulmate relationship and this was was a decision that they made at the studio and i can't say that i disagree with it i can say that it's it's just different and again it was done to make the film better i i know i, I i'm becoming a broken record on that point but believe me almost all the letters i get that regard the film and the and the book are all why did they change this or why did they change that there is no easy way no matter what i do somebody gets hurt if you had this scene that was just heavy and deep and you had had that scene with the mom which was heavy and deep and the love scene which was heavy and deep and then now we we were moving toward the end of the novel which then gets really heavy and deep the film would lose its impact it's just the way it goes so the art to that is to vary these feelings and this is an example it not only adds believability to the characters that they're human that they get mad that everything was not flowers and you know rainbows with these two but they were human beings with feelings and they're each being pulled in different directions not only do they become more real but you move the whole film in the arc in which you intend it to move. In the book, you know, this was one of the uh, the major scenes. The mom has laughed, you know, and she's driving and, and she doesn't know what to do. <laughs> when I first wrote the novel, I knew that was one thing I wanted to do. You had to head into that last third of the story wondering who she chose and i thought that was very important because the you know little mystery always makes a story more exciting and you know i think this is um something you know they do here very well too you know you're you're looking at this story and uh, you wonder who she's cho going to choose and it's a real choice now because you know these are two good people she's choosing i know that it's over between us I'm not bitter anymore because I know that what we had was real. And if in some distance the inclusion of letters in a novel is often well, it's called the epistolary form of writers. Some novels are based entirely on one letter to the other, just one letter back and forth. Other novels incorporate letters here and there. Um, I fall into the latter category and you know, I, letters are a really effective writing tool when you want to, let's say, have a character speak in their voice. For instance, when I was writing The Notebook and you had these, these, these characters, you know, the novel was written in, in third person, which means he and she. A letter would then allow you to speak in first person. I feel this way. It's not only does uh, what, for instance, the argument did, it breaks up the pace, but it allows you a deeper connection to the reader. The reader feels a deeper connection because it's almost like they're reading something very personal. So letters used sparingly can be very, very effective. Now, to write one of the, these letters, you know, I've, I've put them in a few novels, Message in a Bottle. I put them, in, of course, in The Notebook. I put them in The Wedding. put them in Knights and Rodanthe, you know, so I've done it more, you know, a few times. You know, I always have my characters, they, they always claim that they write this letter almost in a heat of the moment or in one fell passionate swoop. But in actuality, I'd say those letters take a day to craft, a day or two days, you know, at least eight hours, because, you know, you want the letter to stand out. It's got to be different, but it's got to be memorable. It's got to be 
very dramatic without being melodramatic. It's got to be moving without being schmaltzy. And to get that kind of balance, all of the letters in the notebook took an exceedingly long time to write. And, you know, I I read uh, many, many letters and and many other epistolary forms of uh, literature before I was even able to grasp how to do it in just the way I wanted so now we come up, and, and, and of course, you've got James Garner and Jenna Rollins, and uh, we're moving back toward what would be the final one-third of the novel. And you see, for instance, that view out the window. My house had a view, my house in Newburn had a view very similar to that when I first began to write the notebook. And, and we were blessed in that we did have, it was a very small house, I guess maybe 1,200 square feet, but we had this great screen porch on the back. It ran the full length of the back of the house. And it was 10 feet wide and, you know, roof and everything. So we had little kids back then. We were able to move all the toys out there, you know, the big roller things that clutter up the living room if you've got toddlers. All of that was we were allowed to put out there on the porch. The kids could play when it was raining, and it was great. So consequently, we spent a lot of time out there. And it was just you sit out there, and I would remember just feeling more and more relaxed. Um uh, you know, no matter what my day had been like. And I think that's one of the reasons why all of my novels have tended to have a very heavy water element and an eastern North Carolina yes. element was, I, I suppose it's just one, this feeling of peacefulness two, that I get when two, when I look at it. Um, you know, I live on the river now in addition, and, you know, uh, this morning I was out there, and you just watch... The, the steam rising off the water. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. Now, this is a scene in the film. Um, it was alluded to in the novel in a different way. This was actually built into one of these letters that Noah wrote to Allie. And it was funny because when I first wrote the novel, there was no closure as to, to Lon and Noah. You never really learned what happened. You learned that Allie went back with Noah. But you never learned what happened to Lon or how that conversation went. And I remember when my editor first got the draft, she's like, look, you know, you, you got to have closure to this. You have to tell what happened. It's normal. And as I was working through the final one-third of the novel, I'm like, well, how am I going to do this? Now it's 50 years later, and it doesn't really tie into any letters. Why, why on earth would Noah, for instance, write about Lon, or why would she write about Lon to Noah? You know, this was not something they probably wanted to remember within the context of their relationship. In the end, I, I ended up building it in just a couple of paragraphs into one of the letters, and I tied it together as an example of, of the courage that, that Allie showed and how proud he was of her. And you see that this is exactly what happened. And then later in that letter, she said, you know, you always knew what to do. You know, I came back to the house and... Uh, and you just knew what to do. You know, you knew whether to get me coffee or sit with me and talk or, or just to leave me alone. And I think that that is uh, one of the strengths of the, of the relationship that they showed in the novel. And, you know, they show a different kind of strength, but a definite strength in, in the film. So we're moving toward the toward the end here. Um, in the novel, there was a real fine balance um, as to the reason why 
Noah would read this story, or even who first who was reading this story, and then why Noah would read this story. And the reason is, once you find out why he does this, the book has reached its climax, and it's going to begin to go downhill. So the art, for instance, of novel writing is to keep the tension as high as you can for as long as you can, and you continue to hold it until it's time. And it was really, really difficult to actually write that in the novel or to do this. For instance, you know, I, I didn't say she had Alzheimer's until you find out that she has Alzheimer's. And nor did I tell him it was Noah until you finally find out that it's Noah. But I had probably 20 to 25 pages to write. And what, what, it, what are you going to talk about? That was really where the challenge came in was the dialogue itself. I was, I was confronted with a situation in which Noah wouldn't tell her who he really was because that would upset her that she couldn't remember it. They couldn't talk about the future and they couldn't talk about the past. They couldn't talk really like couples would talk. So what do they talk about? And I remember literally sitting there at the computer trying to figure these little tiny situations out. What on earth are these people going to talk about? And meanwhile, this dialogue and the scene all had to have them fall in love. I mean, it was a tremendous challenge. If you're not allowed to talk about anything, but you got to fall in love by talking, how do you do that? In the end, you know, you'll, how I did, you'd have to literally go back and read how I did it. But overall, all I did was they talked about the immediate moments of their life. They talked about the dinner. They talked about dancing. They talked about the beautiful swans on the river. They talked about their walk. And that's how they did it. I'm sorry. I'll tell them, sweetheart. And, you know, in the end it worked. But I remember literally sweating over those scenes saying, how am I going to do this, you know, if, if I'm, they're not allowed to talk to anybody? It was something that uh, I, I'm pleased to say nobody noticed or nobody to this day had ever written me about. Um, in other words, and, and that's always a good thing because if nobody notices it, it means it just flowed as perfectly natural as I'd hoped it would. But uh, those were, that was something I, I'm glad I haven't had to revisit since then. Maybe we could get a car. We could go for a ride. We could get out of here and just go someplace. You want to? Now, in the film, of course, they can handle these things a little bit differently. They've been showing the snippets of, uh, of Noah and Allie throughout the whole part of the film, and then you learn about the children, and you're confronted with a scene like this. This is an example of sundowning, and uh, sundowning is an aspect of Alzheimer's. It's, it's almost like... Uh, if people are a little bit okay during the day, it's like the clock winds down or it's like their batteries run out or something. And all of a sudden, the, the dementia comes in. Now, when you're talking about dementia um, or Alzheimer's disease, what that really means is that's called Alzheimer's-induced dementia. And dementia just, and you've got drug-induced dementia or allergy-induced dementia or, or Alzheimer's-induced dementia. This was a scene that was um, in the novel and in the film among the most powerful. You know, he finally got the love of his life back. He'd read to her, he devoted his whole day. He'd courted her and really 
to this point, you see what the story's about. It's about Noah and Allie falling in love, not only when they were kids and not only when they were in their 20s when she came back, but now they've reached the point where Noah has to court Allie every single day all over again because she doesn't know who he is. And it's an awful, awful disease. When I, when I wrote about Alzheimer's, I, I know it's such a personal disease. I know that families who, who are experiencing family members with this disease, I had to be 100% accurate when I, when I wrote about this and described Allie's symptoms because it's so personal, you would get voluminous amounts of mail saying that, no, it doesn't happen like this. So the way I found out about Allie's symptoms and everything that she was going through was to read case studies. And I read thousands of case studies. And the, the most important thing I learned about Alzheimer's is that Alzheimer's varies from not only one person to the next, but within the same person from hour to hour. And there are no rules. There's, there's nothing that's set in stone except that it's progressive in that it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So we're talking about Allie here. This is certainly not Allie um, in the final stages of Alzheimer's, and they go through four stages, stages one, two, three, or four. One is kind of when you first, you know, lose your keys, you know, da-da-da, and it kind of culminates when someone close to you realizes you can't really do things anymore. You know, you might get lost when you're driving or you, you wander away and then you get lost even though it's just around the corner. That would probably be the end of phase one. Phase two takes over and it's just kind of goes down from there. Phase four, people literally can't do anything. They can't speak, they can't do anything until they finally pay, pass away. So this novel was written about phase two Alzheimer's and Noah's attempt to win his his wife's love again day after day. You know, both the movie and the film they they do that. It's this is you know, this is three stories in one and it's the same story repeated. But that's Noah's life now. There's a big symbolic nature to this. This is his life. He loves his wife. He wants her to love him. This is all he can do. Now, this particular scene, I remember that uh, when Jan Sardi and I, when he first came, um, and, and I met Lynn Harris, who was responsible for uh, New Line Cinema for first purchasing the film for the studio and getting the ball in motion and getting Mark Johnson attached and all of this. This was the one scene that, that she just really insisted that be included. This was, this was her scene. She said, I love that scene with the nurse. And... Uh, you know, I like that scene with the nurse, but the nurse, again, is just one of those characters who go back to, I guess, my own worldview, and that's, look, there are good people in the world. People are human, and yeah, there's rules, but you know what? Um, sometimes you break them because it's the right thing to do, and, and that's, that's just the way it is. So don't do anything foolish. Ironically, we're reaching these, these final, you know, toward the end of these films, and uh, these were the only scenes I was here to watch, actually. Uh, when I went down to the set, I certainly didn't spend six or seven weeks there. I spent a, a day and a half there, 
and went down and watched these scenes. And, uh, you know, it was, it was quite a thrill to meet James Garner and Jenna Rollins. And, uh, you know, I saw them here. I saw them act. And I saw how much they obviously cared for the project. And, and Rachel McAdams was standing beside my wife and I, and we were watching them go. And I was uh, just marveling at, at, at people on the set began to cry when you're when you're confronted at uh when confronted with something like this i thought they did a a wonderful a wonderful job particularly in these scenes and ironically these were the scenes that i was there for now in the novel this this was where the movie built to you know there was of course so much omitted between the last, you know, the, we had the scene where she pushes him away and forgets who he is, and then, you know, we, we come to this. In the novel, a great deal more happened. You know, we had a, Noah had a stroke. He didn't know if he was coming back. You know, he read this wonderful letter from Allie, which basically said that, read the notebook to me, and I'll find a way to come back to you. And uh, he said, okay. When I can't remember anything. And so it was right toward the end of the novel that you finally learn why he reads the notebook and exactly what's going on. And he reads this letter, and he's so deeply moved that he's got to go see his wife. And he goes down the hall, and it's uh, his anniversary. And he goes in the room, and uh, in the novel it's very clear that she never recognizes him at night. And he knows he shouldn't be there because she's going to start to scream and cry and Yet he goes in anyway, and he hides these uh, love notes, a, a note of love, a short little stanza of a poem beneath her pillow. And then he's there, and he just looks at her, and even though he knows he shouldn't, he, he just wants to reach out and, and touch her one more time, just stroke her cheek, you know. It's this deep, deep love, and uh, he does, and her eyes flutter open, you know. And in the novel, he knows she she's she's just going to scream but but she doesn't what happens is she recognizes him and it was the first time that she'd recognized him at night in oh so long and uh in the novel you just see the closeness that they that they have for the, each other and i think that uh when you're seeing these final scenes here you know, you see the same thing. You know, these two, you basically know everything that they've gone through. And it's a wonderful story. Good night. Good night. But it wasn't, you know, a, a story that changed the world. This is just a story about two people and their lives and their lives together, and really how, you know, if they had to do it all over again, they, they wouldn't change. And because they were so comfortable with who they are, everybody drew strength from them as well. like to thank you all for listening and uh, hope uh, you enjoyed what I have to say and uh, hope you enjoyed the film and 
Best of luck and God bless in your own lives.